I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and Sirius XM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and Sirius XM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash. Louder! Dude, do you know what they call a cheeseburger in Amsterdam? What do they call cheese? It's a, a fucking a, a royale with cheese, man. They love that shit, the mayonnaise. They slather it all over that <laughs> that fucking shit, you you N-word. All right. Sorry, he just says it a lot in his movies. Everybody, I am your heisty gangster with a filthy mouth talking about eating food and hamburgers. Bruiser Holden McNeely. And I'm your deliciously arched ankles and exquisitely lengthy toe-loving bruiser Jake. <laughs> I'm glad we got the toe thing in there too early. And this is our episode on Quentin Tarantino, the man, the myth, the legend, the auteur, director. I'm so glad we're doing this one. I think we've only covered Kubrick before now, right? The, yeah, in we terms usually of stick to a single movie, but mm-hmm. uh, there's there's a Kubrick in the air. I mean, I'm sorry, yeah. there's a Tarantino in the air. Yes, uh, Tarantino in the air, and and he deserves his own episode. You know, I know we'll get to others like Hitchcock at some point, and folks like that. That, but I think the reason why Quentin Tarantino works so well when it comes to um, this particular podcast is this is a story about the ultimate film nerd this is a story about a guy who literally has pulled from every single movie he's ever seen in his life and knows every single movie that's ever been made and is just so steeped in the culture and history of film it oozes out of every single movie he makes and yet at the same time he's this brilliant genius director that has never taken a directing class or a film class or anything like that that worked in a movie rental store that uh, you know, came out of seemingly nowhere uh, to with Reservoir Dogs and everything else that he did all at once and ended up becoming like this just huge, huge name in entertainment. Uh, and it's all because he was so fucking nerdy about movies. Like, that's it. It's Well, the question is, is he because he was a nerd about movies or was it because just movies was the thing that imprinted on him? Like, sure. I mean, because absence of the classes, absence of the theory, absent of anything, like it's just this weird, awkward kid from a fucked up family Mm -hmm. that just like imprinted on these magic pictures on the screen. 
and specifically an era of movies that like yes. had gotten swept under the rug in the Reagan revolution. Mm-hmm. Like we kind of went from old timey black and white pictures to spiel like in, in the, I'm, how, how do I say this? Like in the, in the, in the mind's eye of history, we went from like old timey times to modern blockbusters and like huge chunks of the seventies and eighties are just like gone. And yeah. basically it's just Tarantino kind of, picking up those pools of references uh you know the the b movies literally the b lower classes of movies and weird art house theaters that just don't exist anymore uh that's what tarantino filled his days with and he gets to use all those neat little tricks and tools alongside just a real how do I say this? Um, a boner for setting up the potential for a terrible situation and then letting it drag yeah. out and then still like hitting you with the terrible thing. The building of tension and then that payoff, uh, especially, I mean, and and clearly a, a, such a huge fan of Spaghetti Westerns. It makes so much sense that Good, Bad, and the Ugly is his favorite film. He's said oh, it yeah. is listed as his favorite film of all time, specifically because he uh, ever, almost every single one of his movies ends, uh, ends in some kind of standoff. A lot of times, too, it's a three-person standoff. If you're not familiar with Good, Bad, and the Ugly, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly are literally three different guys uh, that are referred to as the good, bad, and the ugly. And, of course, they have a three-man standoff at the end, and it's very it's one of the most wonderful, t- t- tense build-up scenes uh, ever made. And you can see that oozing and, bl- b- and everything. rife with everything he does, including his last film. And I love uh, that we're talking about him now because his last film it's funny I said originally that it kind of underwhelmed me but I guess the more and more I think about it the more and more I like it and his last film is definitely a love letter to Hollywood from a certain time period that he loved the time period of spaghetti westerns the time period of black exploitation in the uh, late 60s and 70s that seems to be a, a huge area that he lives in even though I would say his grasp of film knowledge and his uh, influences spread even you know far wider than that net but uh, yeah it, it is a, a just fascinating to learn about his approach about where he came from I mean we all know the little tidbits and little stories if you're at all familiar with Quentin Tarantino I guess before we get into it I have to say I, like Reservoir Dogs was like my favorite movie in high school. I had it. I had it on VHS. I wore that fucking tape out. I What's remember, your favorite line from the movie? Toby Chu, Toby Chu, and he fucked her. No, uh, <laughs> I don't even know. I mean, man, if if you had me think about it, I love the. Um, or scene, I guess. Scene. Yeah, I mean, word. of course, there's the ear cutting off scene. I think maybe the scene before they, that where um, they don't show the ear cutting. Yeah, they don't actually show the. In ear everyone's cutting. memory, they like in their heads are like, oh yeah, and then Madsen just went like, ah, or, yeah, ah. No, yeah, yeah. But like, it never, it, it's not on screen. I think, and then what? Yeah, he holds the ear up and he talks and he's like, <laughs> "Can you hear me?" And like, he's like laughing and shit, which I thought was wonderfully, uh, hilariously evil. <laughs> I think that whole part, though, where he's just like, I'm going to torture you, and there's nothing you can do about it, because I fucking hate cops, so it's just going to happen. It's nothing you can say or do. Like, that whole scene's brilliant. Uh, I love Nice Guy Eddie. You know, just him screaming on the phone in the car, like, all that good stuff. I mean... All those, just all those, like just the scenes where they're the heist has gone wrong, and you just have those little clips of crazy street violence where they're like <laughs> running around like fucking murder, like just murdering people. So it was such a raw way of shooting uh, a scene that it felt so real and so gross and so just like this type of shit would happen in LA or in California. And 
I just loved that movie. I, I used to be able to just like probably close my eyes and, and see the entire thing. I had seen it so many times. And uh, I remember before that, I think my brother got the soundtrack, and I was just super hooked on that soundtrack. And I loved all the. Uh, well, I don't know why I gave you nothing. I loved all of the uh, Little Green Bag and all of the Kevin Wright uh, radio. Uh, interval stuff too <laughs> is so good that dry radio guy K Billy radio man yeah it was like you know I, I feel like this is something I say about a lot of things but it really did feel like a, such a real world that is fully lived in uh, and all that good stuff. I remember I first just liked the soundtrack. I had got went. I was a bit of a scaredy boy when it came to movie violence uh, around like before I got into Tarantino. So I stayed away from the actual material. I remember my a friend of mine came in. He had the cool parents who let him go see Pulp Fiction in the theaters, and he was just going just ranting about it. And I do remember. I have it in my memory. The day, because what I used to love to do, my ideal like Saturday or Sunday was my mother would drive me to Blockbuster. I would rent like two or three movies that I was really excited to see. Then I would, uh, we would drop by the Fresh Market. I get a giant bag of uh, of uh, Sour Patch Kids, <laughs> and I just go with a bunch of Coca Colas and Sour Patch Kids and just like binge watch movies in my room in total silence. And I remember the day I got you Pulp were Fiction. like a young. Quentin Tarantino? Absolutely. I mean, kind of. Except I, I, instead of in your room, he was dumped at a movie theater, as many children yeah. were of the era. <laughs> exactly. And I remember watching Pulp Fiction for the first time, just being completely blown away by it. And at the same time, it not being exactly what you think it's going to be. I mean, when you think of Tarantino, especially early Tarantino, you're all, a lot of what you think about is those crazy big action scenes, those wild stylistic choices, these just incredible ex moments, terrifying moments, hilarious moments. But you forget also that there are these that you see a lot more in his later work or I think you becomes more of a trait in his later work you also have these really long drawn out conversations I remember especially the Bruce Willis in the cab conversation with the cab driver mm -hmm. after he uh, um, abandoned his after he ran out from the fight that he threw and uh, or didn't throw rather and it was just this long discussion that just goes on and on and on and it's fascinating but it's also a quieter Tarantino and Tarantino has a lot of quiet you need it yeah you need it you need he, he's a master of pacing i think i think he's really brilliant at that the <laughs> except well, for in death proof where he has way too many conversations and it's his only movie that i kind of don't like and hey at least for in my uh for my uh in my defense he also does not like that movie so but we'll get to that it's interesting because those quiet moments those long talky moments are a hallmark of those 70s films because they just didn't have the money to mm -hmm. have cool shit happen Every fucking time, you know, there, there existed a market for lower budget movies that made lower profits. And, you know, maybe you had the budget for like uh, one cool fight scene or one car chase scene that was like the glue of the whole movie. And the rest was just kind of padded for time. And so Tarantino's movies like just keeps that pacing, keeps that mm -hmm. weird like high and low kind of uh, pattern. But he just fills it with dialogue. And yeah. he just like great lets dialogue, fascinating linger. dialogue, you know, and and also um. You know, he's one of the only directors, and that's a true sign of an auteur, where, like, I go to the theater for the new Tarantino. Like, it's not even an option, really. I don't think... I think I saw Jackie Brown at, uh, at home as well. But after that, I think I pretty much seen everything in the theater. I don't think I saw Hateful Eight in the movie theater. That was maybe one of the only ones. But I remember seeing Kill Bill. I was doing Study Abroad oh, in God. London. Um 
And I went to, like, the same theater that they premiered it in London, which was super rad. It had, like, the curtain, the big curtain opening and stuff. And just being totally blown away by that. The sequel, of course, as well. I totally remember in Glorious Bastards, we were in Wisconsin shooting Murder Fist sketches. And we all went to the opening night premiere of Inglorious Bastards. We were all blown away. I remember I was actually kind of thrown by the intense violence. The, at the moment end. in the theater... The if I, I can't spoilers. Do we do spoilers? I mean, if uh, yeah, well, we're not going to spoil anything in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Okay. I think everything else is fair. They game. kill Hitler. Yeah, <laughs> I was screaming in my theater because that's the one thing you're not allowed to do. Yeah, it was great, and that was totally yeah that fantasy fulfillment moment was fascinating. Um, I really all I mean Django Unchained. I remember I, I forget what where I was when I saw that in the theater, but I definitely saw it in the theater. It was just it, Django, it, Django. I don't I don't think I have that with like any other director actually. Now that I think about it, where like I always see their their movies are just so just so beautifully shot and so exciting, and you never know what you're gonna get, and you know you're gonna be surprised. It, I mean surprised yeah. in in the way that also is like a familiar hug of a surprise. <laughs> yeah, kind of. But there's still, there's going to be these little, yeah, there's going to be these little things and you're going to be super charmed and super like, and you see a Tarantino-esque moment, like a split screen or something like that, the way he does those and you just love it. You the, see a sign for red apple cigarettes and you're like. Yeah. <laughs> you, get, yeah, you get excited for the opening credits because you'd want to see how he does the opening credits in each and every movie that he shoots and incredible acting and he's definitely, you know, and a director at the end of the day is no better than their uh than the team they assemble and and you can see you know the way that he works with actors the, the his whole crew is incredible but yeah let's get into it the- I, and uh, i just want to acknowledge because there is going to be a, a contingent of people who see his name on the title and will start rolling their eyes and he's a folk hero for opinionated nerds like yeah. i don't know how else to say it he is like he was raised on media he's like a white guy who just like fucking did his thing and like was rewarded heavily for it Mm. and is confident about it and for people maybe like me and you that makes him so cool that makes him awesome and if you're the kind of person that has maybe uh in their life experience had uh less fun with opinionated white guys yeah you hate his guts yeah (laughs) and especially going through his life story he's made mistakes and he was we will talk about him and we will definitely we will definitely i'm not just gonna sit here and fucking suck Quentin Tarantino's dick the entire uh, the entire episode. But like, we no- will definitely talk about some of that. I mean, maybe we might not cover everything, so don't get mad, but or get mad, do whatever you want. But you're allowed not to like him. Yeah. But this is this episode's going to be coming from two people that like. I'm also going <laughs> to say this though. I have seen him do interviews and been like cringing in my seat. <laughs> like it, he's not in any ways like some kind of nerd god to me. Like he is very human, and that's one of the things that's charming about him. But at the same time. Time. Like he, in no way do I think of him as this just like perfect specimen in any fucking in any shape or form. So Quentin Tarantino, born in 1963 in Knoxville, Tennessee, to an actor father who named him after Quint Asper, which was Burt Reynolds character in the CBS series Gunsmoke. So there you go from the very beginning. His parents had a brief marriage in L.A., and he moved with his mother back to her hometown of Knoxville for a few years to get a nursing degree before moving back to L.A., where she married a musician who supported a young Quentin's love of film, taking him to the movie theater often. That yeah, that uh, musician was Kurt Zestapil. Yeah, what did he do? I tried to figure out what he did. Uh, no, well, for a very <laughs> long time, uh, Quentin took on 
he was Quentin Zastapil, which oddly enough sounds like disaster pill, which is uh, a word for a bad movie script, but whatever. <laughs> so he's moving back and forth from L.A. to Knoxville. Uh, his mom has a huge health scare at a certain point. Kurt Zastapil leaves. Uh, like, you know, so he's bouncing back and forth. I feel like it, there's something about when you move, like when you move at a young age and you kind of like lose that social connection and you kind of have a tenuous grasp on like friends, you kind of project onto movies and media and television because it's a constant in your life. Right. And so growing up with a single mom who had like a run of boyfriends and like, you know, she this wasn't like the, this wasn't, you know, the, they couldn't afford a nanny or anything. He was raised in part on movies. And his mom was totally cool with him watching R-rated films, probably because she was incredibly distracted with everything else going on. So, I mean, he's watching some very intense shit at a young age. So talk about imprinting on somebody. I'm sure a lot of that violence that uh, Quentin Tarantino is known for, he is embracing this fully. This is washing over him scenes of this kind of stuff at a very young age. And at 14 years old, a young Quentin Tarantino wrote one, if not the first screenplay of his career called Captain Peach Fuzz and the Anchovy Bandit. <laughs> Which is based what? on the 1977 this... film Smokey and the Bandit. How does this keep getting brought up in Quentin Tarantino? What, Smokey and the Bandit? Or... No, the, the Captain Anchovy, because like <laughs> everybody who has ever had access to a camera has filmed some weird bullshit in their backyard. <laughs> it doesn't mean that's your first movie. Right, 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 exactly. It was more, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it is wild. And by the way, this... By... My first screenplay, quote unquote, unfinished. I don't. I think we maybe wrote a scene. Was totally a absolute Reservoir Dogs ripoff. So it was really funny <laughs> to read that and be like, I did that at age fourteen. I fucking wrote some like some terrible gangsters in a warehouse yelling fuck at each other. Every other word. That was pretty much what it was. God, I should try Hold to on, find can, that. Can you summon like a? Can I? Can I get a scene from from your? What? Hey man, everything's fucked, man. We're getting fucked over here. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? You fuck. Don't fucking say that to me. You piece of shit. Hey, fucker. I know what I'm fucking doing. You know what I mean? It was literally like. And then was... a Mexican standoff with everyone holding Nerf guns. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Of course, we never filmed it or anything, but I definitely remember writing that and just being like, uh, uh, and it being definitely the first thing I had, like, a well, script, quote unquote. You had as much experience with the underworld as Quentin Tarantino did. Yeah, so. that's the thing. So when Harvey Keitel, and this is the whole film nerd thing, right? When And we're skipping, and I'll, we'll get yeah. to how Harvey Keitel gets involved later, but when Harvey Keitel does go to Quentin Tarantino and say, like, how did you write this? Did you grow up in a shitty neighborhood? Did you grow up with around people like this? Like, what's the deal? What was your thing? And he was like, no, I've just seen an, so many movies. <laughs> I've just seen so many movies that I can write these kinds of characters. So at 15, he's grounded for shoplifting an Elmore Leonard novel, which makes a lot of sense considering his adaptations later, titled The Switch from a Kmart and was only able to leave the house to put on productions at the Torrance Community Theater. He ends up dropping out of high school at 15 as well and working as an usher at the Pussycat Theater, which showed oh, porn films. Wait, they show porn at the Pussycat Theater? Oh, yeah, mama, of course, right? It'd be funny if they showed cat just cat docs. That'd be kind of interesting. Just like different cat related films. There's just all these horny old men in there just being like, I was sold a different story. And uh, then there's one even hornier old man who's just letting loose to Milo and Otis. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, 
so he took acting classes where he met a lot of longtime collaborators. This is at the James Best Theater Company, where, and he worked during this time a ton of odd jobs throughout the 80s, including... Uh, James Best was uh, one of the stars of Dukes of Hazard. Oh, I didn't even know that. I should have looked up It's James very Best important was. that he was... Because he wants to be an actor so at this point. But so much sense. Yeah, he's, he's thinking he's, he's going to be an actor. His idea is, because, you know, uh, I feel like you grew up... I feel like everybody grows up imprinting on some medium, whether it's video games or uh, comedy or films. And, you know, the idea is this is more real than my reality at this point. Mm. And I want to be a part of it. I want to be the star of real reality. Yeah. And so your first thing is always, I'm going to be an actor. I'm going to be a comedian. I'm going to be the guy in front of the camera. And then you kind of like find your way into, you know, however you can best fit this thing you love. Absolutely. And everybody who gets in a film at first as a young person, almost everyone is like, I'm going to be an actor. And then they end up finding screenplay, directing, whatever it is, their role. Um, so he is he ends up uh, working a lot of odd jobs throughout the 80s, including a recruiter for the aerospace industry and notably at a video rental store called Video Archives. So this is an important thing. People think of Quentin Tarantino as being just this like crazy wayward guy who was just the normal, like, video nerd. But uh, in reality, he had actually, he was doing phone solicitation, and say what you will about Quentin Tarantino, he has the gift of gab. He can, like, keep the conversation going, and that is essential for phone sales. So he was earning, like, thousands of dollars doing this phone job, and it was just, and he would come to Video Archive and be like, and, you know, just was a regular customer. And uh, eventually, he just had enough financial security that when they were like, hey, you want to work here? He was like, yeah, that sounds more interesting. Like, <laughs> yeah. he had a cushion. It wasn't like a show of desperate. Like, Quentin Tarantino, right. without this video archive job, would just be another upper-class sales guy with a Bluetooth headset and, like, a reasonable, like, not a, you know, uh, like, uh, he'd be driving an Infinity. Yeah. And, no. and instead, One of those Infinity one guys. One of those Infinity owners. If you own an Infinity, stop listening. Actually, please. If you had worked harder, you could have been an Audi owner, <laughs> but you were lazy. <laughs> So he's known at the video archives as this huge film buff, and he recommends tons of interesting and obscure films. He ends up uh, meeting a producer at a party named Lawrence Bender. Big, big, oh, whoa, important whoa, name. whoa, 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 whoa. What did I skip a bunch of stuff? Oh my God. What? Okay. So <laughs> at the video, oh, so at video archive, which was because Tarantino became this legendary you know, film Mecca for a couple of years and then it moved locations and also people stopped giving a shit about VHSs. But he made friends with a lot of uh, people. Oh, sure. Yeah. Working there. And so um, Roger Avery probably being the most important. I was definitely going to come back to him, but oh, for yeah. sure he meets him. He ends up co-writing uh, Pulp Fiction with him and uh, uh, whatnot. And another guy named uh, what was it, like Hannon, Dannon. <laughs> mm. uh, and uh, together they're kind of a, uh, they're working on all sorts of things together, all sorts of video projects. One project that they started trying to film was called uh, Love, Birds, and Bondage, about a man whose girlfriend gets institutionalized, hmm. and they try, and uh, and the hero has to uh, himself get institutionalized to join her. 
my best friend's birthday is this legendary yes. project. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, well, it was uh, actually he meets this producer Lawrence Bender at a party, and he uh, it's Lawrence Bender that convinces him to go back to writing screenplays. And the first screenplay that he ends up writing after that is a '70s exploitation action movie, which was uh, eventually abandoned. Uh, but his second film, My Best Friend's Birthday, so the '70s exploitation action movie, that's definitely the one you just described. My Best Friend's Birthday, he managed to co-write and direct in 1987 with the plot described as a young man continually tries to do something nice for his friend's birthday only to have his efforts backfire. It was uh, So it was Craig Hammond, I believe. Yes, that's it. Who he actually did meet through the James Best Theater Company that he wrote it with. He shot it on a budget of approximately five thousand dollars on sixteen millimeter film over the course of four years. This is very reminiscent, by the way, of of like Baby's first movie. Mm-hmm. Baby's first movie always takes like way too long to make. Because it's, it's on a being... horrible budget. It's like yeah, people they're all... can visibly age. Yeah, as they're, the they're shooting it on like weekends. They're you know it's it takes forever. Uh, the, In uh, 1994, uh, Quinn Tarantino uh, says, uh, this was the best film school for a person a person could possibly have. Instead of going to a school and paying a ton of money to be allowed to use some of their crappy equipment, all right, I actually went out, I actually tried to make a feature film, all right? Now, I failed. Uh, <laughs> it was guitar picks when I was finished. But the stuff that I did, the last couple of months of filming wasn't so bad. Uh, that was my film school. I learned <laughs> Last how. Last couple months of a four-year-long process were not so bad. That's my film school. I learned how not to make a movie. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the original cut was seventy minutes long, but there was a fire at the film lab that left only thirty-six minutes still in existence. This footage has been edited together and shown at Film Fest. Now that I think about it, because there was so much research to do for this one, I don't. I, I meant to go back and like try to look it up. I bet it's like on YouTube or something. Were you able to catch any of it? Uh, there's like uh, we uh, that uh, BBC I, documentary had a couple of seconds of footage of I it. Call, I caught like uh, some stills. I mean, I had a decent idea of what uh, it looked like, which was very crappy and uh, very young Tarantino. Which what's weird is all the weird proto Tarantino shit that happens in it. For oh, example, yeah? uh, Tarantino plays a character named Clarence, like the hero in True Romance, who has a monologue about how he'd fuck Elvis. Um, <laughs> there's a character named Misty, who's uh, you know a, a hooker with a heart of gold that's so impressed by the nerd that she falls in love with him and gives up hooking. Mickey is the other character, and he's the guy from, you know, that's the name from Natural Born Killers. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's so many movie trivia, and uh, K-Billy Radio is where the two main characters work. K-Billy's And that's from Reservoir Dogs. That's awesome. Um, The scene where where someone's hiding in a shower. K-Billy's super sounds of the 70s. (laughs) From Dust Till Dawn. And... uh, Quentin Tarantino's character, Clarence, just casually admits that he has a foot fetish in this movie. Of course. <laughs> His first real job in the film industry... Oh, actually- oh and mm-hmm. there's a scene where someone mistakenly snorts the wrong powder thinking it's cocaine. Ah. But because... I uh, love these details. Uh, because That's my best awesome. friend's birthday is a wacky comedy, it's not heroin, it's itching powder. Uh, no, oh, no, itching powder. What even is that? There's Get the ache. adrenaline. That's such a weird old school thing. Like, why Why does itching powder exist? <laughs> why is there itching why is he? Who would make that? Why would anybody make that? The first real job in the film industry that he had was as a production assistant on a Dolph Lundgren exercise video called Maximum Potential. This thing is fucking crazy. Oh, you looked it up? It's so amazing. I bet it's crazy. It is opening this is like i want dolph lundgren to be president after his 
like dialogue in this special. He talks about achieving the next level of evolution, becoming a technological man. Uh, Mary, please, I beg of you, if I, I think it's on YouTube. If you can find a clip on YouTube, just play Dolph Lundgren's crazy talking from this thing. The intensity of modern life, the constant flow of information, personal relationships, career pressures, making it, being somebody, overachieving to live the high technology lifestyle. It's your life, and you can take control of it. It's up to you. I believe uh, it was Avery also worked on it with him, but Avery quit when one of their first jobs was to go to an empty part of Venice Beach and clean up all the dog turds that were <laughs> on the set that they were going to shoot on. You know, And the union guys refused to let them use any of their equipment to sweep it up, so uh. they had to use paper towels in their bare hands. <laughs> Quentin Tarantino stuck it out. You gotta love it for the art, man. So his first acting gig, I, I also meant to go back and look this up, which I'm sure I will eventually, was as an Elvis impersonator on the fourth season of The Golden Girls in an episode titled Sophia's Wedding Part 1, and it aired in 1988, which is fucking crazy. So this is where I think the, the he-came-from-nowhere idea uh, kind of kicks in is, you know, uh, he dropped out of high school. So he was a teenager and a, like a guy in his early 20s doing the kind of like fuck around and mistakes that someone uh, has to do to succeed creatively. Usually by the time they're 30 or like in their late right. 20s, they're, they've matured enough to like actually get shit made. But Tarantino got it out of his system early. So all of a sudden, he's producing these mature uh, scripts. How do you... I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but, but I should I should have figured this out. How old was he when he did Reservoir... Like, when Reservoir Dogs, like, hit? Uh, that was 1992. Okay. So he was born in 63. Oh, that's too much math. Uh, no, no, no. That's uh, 30. So he's 29. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. But that's still... That like to make a Reservoir Dogs at twenty nine yeah. as a direct, it's like an, it's an incredible feat. You can break through as an actor usually really young, but to be like breakthrough as a director, that usually doesn't happen like th that early. Um, so when people especially say with he like no without having any real experience up to that point uh, in the in the whole Hollywood studio system. And the everything. lesson is, kids, drop out of high school as quickly as you can. Tell your teachers to go. Fuck. <laughs> uh, I mean, duck. sometimes depending on what you want, you know, there are cases where I think if if somebody came to me and said, "I want to do this, I want to do ex yada yada yada," I would literally be like, um, for the most part, for, when it comes to this show, go to Cal Arts. But if it's not that, uh, <laughs> then you know, um, uh, prob maybe so. A lot of times, fucking drop out. I mean, my only saving grace for. Florida State personally was that I met everybody from you know that would become Murder Fist there you know but it was about the people I was with not necessarily the, the oh yeah still, the education that I got he still went to acting school he still worked at a at a movie uh, rental place like he still surrounded himself with like minded people mm -hmm. in a formal setting exactly but he didn't have to learn fucking trigonometry to do it <laughs> mom dad I'm quitting high school. I'm going to be one of those famous dum-dums. <laughs> hey, everybody. It's me, your wicked wizard, Jake, here to talk about this week's sponsor, Quip. Folks, the hazy, lazy days of summer are almost behind us. And let's face it, you got to get back into the routine. You're going to go back to school. You got to try at work. You got to put away those board shorts. And another thing you got to do is take care of your oral hygiene routine. That's right. I'm talking to the three out of four of you listening right now who are currently brushing with an out-of-date 
overused, disgusting toothbrush with worn out bristles that dentists say you should have thrown out and replaced months ago. What if I told you you never have to worry about it again? And you can brush with a luxurious, powerful, sonic vibrated assistant electric powerhouse of technology and design. That's what Quip is for. Quip is an electric toothbrush that actually has replaceable brush heads that get delivered to your house on a dentist-recommended three-month schedule. And not only that, it comes with this wonderful, almost magical case that can stick to your mirror, doubles as a stand, and if you flip it around, it covers the bristles and you can use it as a travel case to keep it protected. That's incredible design at an incredible price. In fact, I'm going to be honest, we're a Quip household here in Brooklyn, and it was an immense boon to our oral hygiene. Instead of forgetting about a replacement toothbrush, it's actually kind of a fun thing to get a new package in the mail and click it into place like you're, I don't know, reloading an oral care laser. That's why I love Quip, and that's why it's perfect for getting back into a routine. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com wizard right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash wizard. So before we get into his big breakthrough, I want to take a minute to talk about a few of his influences uh, so that we have a little bit of a background for the films that are about to come. So in 2012, he listed his top 12 films as Apocalypse Now, The Bad News Bears, Carrie, Dazed and Confused, The Great Escape, His Girl Friday, Jaws, Pretty Maids All in a Row, Rolling Thunder, Sorcerer, Taxi Driver, and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, the latter being his favorite. Uh, he also noted that uh, Fukusaku's Battle Royale, which um, is the Japanese uh, young child children being dropped on an island to murder each other uh, to be the last person standing, which is now the new favorable genre of video game, which is crazy. Uh, that what? was That's old news. We're playing Minecraft again, you oh, idiot. Oh, God. That, is being his, that has uh, his favorite since he started directing in 1992. But he also said he was very highly influenced by a film critic. He said, I can say that the person that influenced me the most as far as my storytelling and my filmmaking was concerned was the film critic Pauline Kael. I didn't go to film school, but I read her reviews, and I'm here to tell you that her reviews were better than any film school and better than any professor. She taught me an aesthetic. I'm not saying that I agreed with her all the time. I could disagree with many of her reviews, but it was a way of looking and talking about cinema that affected me to this day. Also, he was, of course, heavily influenced by the music that soundtracks his stories while writing. He says this about the integration of music uh, when he's in the writing process. What I'll do is, it's like breaks. That will be like my breaks. I'll have a bunch of music that's in the spirit of the movie, all right? You know, rock songs or whatever. And I'll write, 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 and then I need to get up and walk around or whatever and just, like, listen to music, walk around, hear the song in my head. You play it for a while and just kind of burn off the energy that way, then sit down, get back to the work again. Uh, the other part of it, this is the, this is the other thing. This is, like, the perfect quote that sums up his being the ultimate, ultimate film nerd. I'll walk outside, and if it's raining, if I just fell in love with a girl, I might go do the Gene Kelly dance in the rain. When I was a little kid, I'd see a Charles Bronson movie, and I'd stand in the mirror, like, pretend I was Charles Bronson, talking down the bully. If I see an action movie, and the guy's wearing a cool jacket or something in it, I want to buy that jacket. Just, just, just ate, breathed, drank film. It was, it was, it's the only thing that I think, I think he lives more in film than in the real world. 
Um, so this is also right before we talk about his breakthrough. One last quote that perfectly, I think, sums up what made him such a unique success and what I think makes for great art. He said, I didn't write to sell. I wrote to direct it. But first, you have to get past the readers, and they're the ones that always blew my stuff off. And I didn't know if the dramatic structure would work. It was a theory I had that if you were to take a novelistic structure and put it into film, it would be very cinematic. Edit it like that. Tell a story like that. Chapter headings. So I think not writing to sell and writing, making his own form, sure, it made it difficult in terms of him getting past the, the early readers in a studio mm-hmm. because it was just so off the, like, how to write a screenplay format that was being taught in every class, that basic structure. Which is kind of funny because I read recently, um, this I think was even on Reddit, and maybe this, I hope this is true, but it, about the guy who wrote uh, Godfather Part 1 and Godfather Part 2, and he was like, decided after the fact to read a book about screenwriting because he was like, just wanted to like, hone his chops i guess and in the very first chapter it was like study godfather one (laughs) so so you know i think a lot of times it's better to not have that technical knowledge especially early on so that you can find your voice stand-up comedians we like i guess i'll say we even though i only did it for like a year you the whole thing that you do at first is find your voice at first you're like on stage you're just copying everybody else and regurgitating all these different styles i always said i don't know that this is true anymore because comedy's changed so much but i uh when i first got to new york i always thought there were two different comics that would get on stage in the very beginning of their career and they were either trying to do um uh andy kaufman or uh, what's his? Oh God! Why can't I think of his name right now? Uh, I hate myself right now. Why can't I think? The dirty uh, George Carlin, not George Carlin, but very political. That died of cancer. Uh, oh, Bill Hicks. Bill Hicks. Everybody's either trying. I always said when I first got. Those to- are, first of all, those are the very specific kind of New York alt comics. Yes, <laughs> they are. But when I was doing open mics, and I was in an Andy Kaufman, by the way, I always said you were an Andy Kaufman. The two, the two things people were doing when they first started out was either Bill Hicks or Andy Kaufman. You were either trying to do super off the wall, like avant garde comedy to challenge people because you hadn't found your voice yet, or you were trying to be this like bad boy talking about politics and pissing people off because again, you had no idea what your voice was and. And I think it was to his credit that he didn't take a film class because Tarantino was able to sit down and find his voice without any of that layering on top of his voice of this is how you you know you need to find this in Act One and Act Two needs to look like this and you need to you know and you save the cat and all the fucking bullshit right and he completely uh, went around that and had a completely different approach which I will talk about a little later too because I got some quotes on it but that he would approach it like a novel he would write he would. St- all his screenplays he approached like a full-on novel which i think makes sense because because of those chapter headings and stuff and then he would like adapt that novel to a screenplay and i think it worked out really well for him did you uh find anything about the open road uh what about so the open road was another screenplay that uh he had like done besides uh my best friend or whatever he had actually like wiggled his way into doing a cheap punch-up job for a bad thriller starring Rutger Hauer. Hmm. It's, it's fucking weird. Dolph Lundgren and Rutger Hauer paved the way for Quintarantino's Tarantino's Just weird, foreign, <laughs> strong boys. I, I believe that. I actually completely, completely am not shocked by that. He did punch up for that, which then gave him like uh, a little bit of wiggle room, you know, like a, you know, a, a grand and a half, which back in the eighties was enough to like give you a little wiggle room. Uh, he also did like uh, more phone sales and solicitation for film companies. So he was making connections through there. 
but uh, he started helping uh, Greg Hammond with another script. Also, according to uh, Legend, he also did Punch Up on It's Pat. Nice, the movie? Yeah. Hell yeah, he oh, did. you know what? I'm sorry. It was Roger Avery uh, handed him a script that was uh, kind of rough and over under, was like short. And uh, Quentin Tarantino then became obsessed with like padding it out and created this sprawling, basically novelistic, magical realism thing that, <laughs> uh, hear me out, uh, a guy named Clarence and a girl named Alabama are on a road trip together and trying to escape her uh, pimp and other mobsters. Hmm. Meanwhile, uh, a serial killer named Mickey and his girlfriend are uh, on their road trip and uh, – Clarence is writing the story of natural born killers while the hmm. story of true romance is happening. And then the worlds begin to collide and Clarence doesn't know what's real anymore. And it becomes so off the wall and so magical and so weird that Avery has to be the one to be like, I think these are two movies. <laughs> <laughs> That's but, awesome. So yeah, true romance and natural born killers become those two movies. And mm -hmm. he actually, you know, those end up getting passed around Hollywood and he's like, they're basically in development hell, but he does get money for them. So wait, he because I was about to say uh, talk about a little bit uh, from Dust Till Dawn. Is that happened yet, or is that? Oh, he uh, did Dust Till Dawn. You know what? I completely glossed over. Oh, it. that's okay. I'm, I'm not. I don't have a ton. I'm not going to go too far into it because we have too much to cover today. But, but part of his connections from doing phone solicitations for a video, uh, not like basically the video company that sells low rent horror and schlock to rental stores. Mm. Uh, he made a connection with this like schlocky, like film horror company. And is that what connects him to special effects guru, Robert Kurtzman? Yes. Ha hell yeah. Uh, so he ends up hiring Quentin Tarantino for his first writing job, which is from Dust till dawn. And uh, this was also Kurtzman's first turn as producer and director. The film Tarantino's in the film. The movie is so similar to so many other things that Tarantino does to subvert. It's really two movies in one. The first films about these, you know, kidnapping, serial murdering kind of awful guys, these henchmen that are uh, have taken this family hostage. And then uh, the whole second half, spoiler alert, is just this full-out zombie movie. It is such a fun film. I love watching it from dusk till dawn. It's got, you know, Selma Hayek is fantastic. That's Everybody's all I remember great. from the movie. Yeah, exactly. Her striptease. That's all I... Uh, uh, God, the luckiest snake. Well, when it comes... I've to never wanted to be a snake <laughs> more than that exact moment. <laughs> and Kurtzman, though... Jesus, like, take my arms and let me be a snake Kurtzman like his work on this I mean those vampires are intense <laughs> intense yeah it's more than just the blood yeah it is like really good makeup work so that oh, and that's... Cheech Marin's legendary monologue no, yes oh yeah all the different pussies um it's fantastic it is really great I really love that movie but it's really it's a culty crazy schlocky thing uh, to use the word schlock again but it definitely started to put his name in the map of course he also ends up selling true romance and natural born killers um true romance being an homage to old ro romance comic books about criminal lovers and uh natural born killers is just this insane 
you know, serial murder. It's like a Bonnie and Clyde, but in 10 times more violent and disturbing. And that, of, and of course, ends up being directed by Oliver Stone. Quentin Tarantino would later get sued by one of the producers of that film for $5 million after he punched him several times at a West Hollywood restaurant, apparently due to the portrayal of Quentin Tarantino in a book written by that producer's partner called Killer Instinct about the making of Natural Born Killers. Also, Quentin Tarantino has gone out against natural born killers uh as well since that movie was made claiming you know that it just it was it's not really wasn't really his movie by the time it ended up uh yeah, he, he has out. like an associate produ- he has a weird credit on it rather than a screenplay mm-hmm. and so while working at video archives he planned to shoot a film with his friends on a budget of thirty thousand dollars in 16 millimeter black and white footage format with producer lawrence bender who i mentioned before playing a police officer chasing a bad guy named mr pink Bender gave the script to his acting teacher, whose wife gave it to Harvey Keitel, who liked it enough to sign on as co-producer, which made funding easier to nail down, and they ended up raising actually, actually, $1.5 million. There's a little bit more into that story. There's actually, you know, this screenplay was shopped around to different producers, and Tarantino did not want to compromise on it. You know, he wanted to do the $30,000 version. And so uh, Bender literally took out a bank loan to try and like make it bump it up to like $50,000. And that was like secured. And Bender was like, listen, we need more funding. We, I would like to, this to be a, a real movie. Uh, and if it doesn't work out, like, fine, we'll do it your way. But like, just let me do this. And yeah. Tarantino was pretty much against this because Natural Born Killers was such a fuck for him to actually like get through the system. Different, like, uh, shitty horror movie. Like, literally the producer of Silent Night, Deadly Night 3 gets on board. (laughs) There was another person that, like, was going to offer him over a million dollars in funding, but... All the heist guys at the end would just get up and walk out the door as like a sly homage to like old timey movies. One guy was like, "Okay, I'll do it," but Mister Pink gets to has to be my girlfriend. Like, <laughs> so there was a couple of steps in between uh, getting Kaitel on board. And Quentin Tarantino at this time, by the way, yeah, he is just starving, dying to make his own movie, dying to to put his mark on on uh filmmaking himself and 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 take these scripts and and do what he knew he wanted to do with them he said i wanted to make films and the only thing i could get going was on the page so i put it all in the script the big shots the chase is broken down shot for shot it's cut in the script pov through windshield mr pink off screen i was making the movie on the page because it was the only way i could make movies and then when i would show it to someone i could say look this is what i'm going to do i'm not going to do this just this Keitel was also uh, paid for casting sessions in New York where they locked in Steve Buscemi, Michael Madsen, and Tim Roth. Quentin Tarantino was heavily influenced for this film by Stanley Kubrick's The Killing, which we talked about in the Kubrick episode about a veteran criminal planning one last heist before settling down who assembles a team of pros and the whole thing goes bad. Quentin Tarantino said... I didn't go out of my way to do a ripoff of The Killing, but I did think of it as my killing, my take on that kind of heist movie. He also pulled from the 1966 spaghetti western Django, which will come up again later, for the scene where uh, the cop is tortured. Colors were used for characters in The Taking of Pelham 123 about these criminals who take over a New York subway train. That movie fucking rules, by the way. So if you want to like throw on something that will just bring you that awesome 70s Manhattan vibe, oh man, that is such a good flick. Uh, it was the talk of the town, this movie. So he shoots this movie, makes it with all these guys. It's, oh, it's- not only, but uh, he gets a little bit of a hype bump when mm. uh, Keitel gets him a, a slot on the... Um, Sundance Institute workshop ah, in 1991. 
gotcha. where uh, he, uh, which is like a long-standing tradition. They, I think they still do this. These young kind of untested directors get access to cameras and can do like test shots and test screenings to kind of, kind of uh, like build their case to get more funding from all the. I'm pretty sure they totally still do that. Yeah, foofy yeah. doofs uh, who are there up there for Sundance, and you can find this footage as well. And it's Tarantino and uh, Steve Buscemi who was just cast at a New York uh, audition call. And uh, they're doing all sorts of crazy stuff, doing long takes, taking all these weird angles, doing classic Tarantino dialogue. And at first, uh, like uh, the first group of people that see it, hate it. They don't understand what's going on. Then Terry Gilliam takes Hmm. a look at it and he is in love. Terry Gilliam is absolutely now on board and more people get a look at this footage and now Reservoir Dogs has a little bit of industry buzz. It has a little bit more like uh, people in power who are rooting for this movie. Hmm. So at the 1992 Sundance Film Festival, he is the talk of the town. He is just, everyone is going crazy over this movie, and he ends up getting distribution by Miramax Films, opening in the U.S. in 19 theaters and later 61. And it's this big cult hit. It, I, I remember this. I don't know if I was aware of Reservoir Dogs like when it came right when it came out, but I was pretty soon aware of it, probably like a year or so after it came out, especially with the success of Pulp, Pulp Fiction. I, the literal first like whisper of what Quentin Tarantino was to me was the uh, itchy and scratchy homage to the ear cutting scene uh-huh. uh, in an episode of The Simpsons. That's and I was right. like, what is this a reference Simpsons to? Simpsons did so many references to, because to, one of my favorite was the Chief Wiggum in the, talking about the hamburgers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Talking about the Krusty Burgers. 22 short films. So, yeah, that's which is one of my favorite Simpsons episodes ever. Huge Pulp Fiction homage. Yeah, uh, like so much Pulp Fiction going on in that. But And, and again, it's who are the writers of The Simpsons? A bunch of... Clever, opinionated yeah. white guys who watched too much TV in the 70s <laughs> and were primed to th- uh, catch what Quentin Tarantino was throwing down. So after the success of Reservoir Dogs, True Romance comes out. That's also a hit. It cements him as a big Hollywood hopeful and a guy who likes to say fuck a lot. Now we move on to Pulp Fiction. Quentin Tarantino, at this point, everyone's talking about him. He ends up getting offered projects like Men in Black, Speed. I mean, just huge things are from around this time. But instead, he ends up heading to Amsterdam to write his next classic where he spends three months in a one-room apartment with no phone or fax. By the way, the scene in the very beginning where they're talking about the burgers and the hash bars, that's all uh, uh, not Jules, but Vince Vega's trip to Amsterdam. So I think that was definitely highly influenced by the fact that he was writing it there. And he ends up writing in a dozen uh, school notebooks, all handwritten, and he ends up just handing this to typist Linda Chin, who said, his handwriting is atrocious. He is a functional illiterate. I was averaging about 9,000 grammatical errors per page. After I would correct them, he would try to put back the errors because he liked them. Him and uh, George Lucas writing in those long legal notepads. Who mm-hmm. knew? Not a bad idea, though. I mean, if you really want to feel free, my problem is like my hand cramps up really quickly, but I feel like it's better than typing things up if you really want to let your mind go and get free with your writing. I totally see the the handwriting stuff. What were you going to say, Jake? Oh, uh, just uh, among his weird, like, tooling around with other movies, uh, he did do a pass on The Rock. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously? Yep. Weird. Yep. (laughs) I wonder if he was the, hey, baby, you know how JFK died? I wonder if that was him. I mean, it might be. 
Uh, so he was hit with an idea of recycling three of the oldest used plot devices from pulp magazines in the 20s and 30s. The ones you've seen a zillion times. The boxer who's supposed to throw a fight and doesn't. The mob guy who's supposed to take the boss's wife out for the evening. The two hitmen who come and kill these guys. Hence the name of the movie, Pulp Fiction, coming from these pulp crime mags and everything he ends up co-writing it with roger avery who he worked with at the video store but this gets a little wishy-washy and there was actually some legal disputes he i believe gives him a story credit so that he but he had to like give him some money to do that so that he i think the main one avery wrote when they divvied it up was the bruce willis story that has the scene with him and the cab driver the the boxer that throws the that's supposed to throw the fight but doesn't so what is actually avery's in this script is very wishy-washy is very um unclear but uh, he ends up getting a story credit. They have since been really good friends, but there was a while where they had a lot of contention because Avery apparently was upset that he didn't get a written by credit. Well, if this movie wins, you know, every award yeah. and makes him and the, the God only King. well, the only award it won at the Oscars was screenplay. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, I'd be probably pretty pissed that I didn't get an Oscar for a movie that technically I co-wrote. But still. Him and Avery are good now. And it was Danny DeVito, actually, that got the script over to the big stupid asshole named Harvey Weinstein and therefore picked up to shoot. And by the way, and we will definitely talk about Quentin's reactions to Harvey Weinstein in either this or next episode, because I think this is going to end up being a two-parter. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, yeah, as we we come up on time and we've only covered his first two movies. (laughs) So I think maybe after Jackie Brown, we'll we'll probably pause it for part two. So uh, Quentin Tarantino... He's he's still he's new, but he still has to fight to be this auteur director that we all know him as now. We would never consider Tarantino not getting his way in terms of casting, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to like casting someone who hasn't been fresh in a long <laughs> time. Uh, but now that's his bread and butter, right? Yeah. But he ends up he has to fight really hard to get John Travolta to uh, get cast in this movie, completely against the studio's wishes. He had he also had to get final cut of the film, total control over over the whole thing. Um, and uh, yeah, they shoot it. I mean, what this is the first time he, he works with Uma Thurman, uh, which was which was huge on the set. They end up devising the concept of this character of the bride, which is later going to be uh, Kill Bill and Kill Bill Two. Uh, so many things happen during this. All uh, you know, you've got. Is Samuel L. Jackson's first appearance with Tarantino, who would go on to make five more films with him. And, I mean, let's just talk about this for a second. This fucking movie is still... I put it on the other day, and it was hard for me to pause it to keep researching. I just am immediately enraptured in every piece of dialogue, that opening scene at the restaurant, the, the Jules's monologue about... You know, well, Jules's initial monologue, and then his second monologue at the end of the movie, where he breaks down this uh, this uh, Bible passage that he says in his initial monologue. Which isn't technically a Bible passage. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. The, the, the dance sequence with Travolta and Uma Thurman is unbelievable. The, well, the uh, whole... The, uh, uh, Christopher Walken with the fucking watch up his ass, and apparently, like, he had this, like, it's like a four-page long speech, and Walken, every time he gets to the part where the <laughs> watch up the guy's ass, he, like, cannot do it with a straight face. 
but he, it, it's an incredible performance. There is just such so many things to talk about when it comes to Pulp Fiction that we were originally going to maybe just do an episode on Pulp Fiction. I totally would in the future sometime down the road, but I have to give it its due because I think it may – Maybe it's like probably either that or Inglorious Bastards. I feel is is are his best. You know, is his best film. I yeah. absolutely just think it's such a masterpiece. And the reason why I like it maybe more than Inglorious Bastards is that like it set the stage for so much stuff to come. But it's also maybe the most exciting to me, the most surprising, the most just ju- compelling. The the d- being able to write three different stories and weave them together and have them be separate entities but have them feel like one whole story that no one's ever really accomplished that well before it's incredible well when you say weaving stories i feel like this would be a good time to introduce uh, a person uh sally menke who uh was his editor on reservoir dogs and pulp fiction and basically all of his movies up until i believe inglorious bastards uh she had a very tragic uh death she died in in a hiking accident but um you know, Quentin Tarantino basically calls her like his only true collaborator. When did she pass away? What film did she pass away after? I believe it was Inglorious Bastards. Oh my uh, God. Django Unchained was dedicated to her memory. Okay. Wow. Um, Man. And you know what? You catch that a little bit. Like, you can feel that. Hateful Eight is, I think, Hateful Eight and even arguably Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, just not quite as on the level to me as those other films it's 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 almost uncanny like everyone from spielberg to george lucas like behind every crazy auteur who's trying to jam pack at like all the insane references and ideas that they have there's usually a female director kind of just like reeling yeah. them in and or, being edit, like, or editor oh mean? yeah that's what i said uh female editor reeling them in and yeah. actually weaving 100 all of the footage into a uni- a more universal story in the documentary, I uh, I watched, uh, you know, she's there for a brief time, and she's talking about how Quentin Tarantino shot, like, so much footage of the date between Vincent and Mia. Hmm. She was like, Quinn, there's too much dialogue, there's too much this, and, and, you know, the compromise they came to was that they would keep the quieter moments, like the weird still moments, because that's what, like, a date is. It's just right. like being locked in with this other person. Love that. That, that date, that feels so real. That whole day, especially with the stakes that you get uh, from the whole conversation with Jules about the foot massage and the guy being thrown out the window and all that. Good stuff. And just knowing that Vince, Vince and Vega's fully on heroin <laughs> too the whole time while Uma Thurman's character uh, is just fucking coked to the gills. Uh, so this film is a huge blowout it's it's you know it wins the palm door at cans that's like the big film uh award you can get at can and that uh, means the golden palm yeah you're the you're the big boy if you win it a woman literally screamed pulp fiction is shit on <laughs> tarantino's uh, way to accept the award he shot the finger to her and said i don't make movies that bring people together i make movies that split people apart <laughs> and it's probably due to the intense violence in the film which tarantino has had to defend his entire career yeah i have this quote about that he said the bottom line line is My number one responsibility is not to society at large. It's to my characters and to be true to them. If you had to stop and think what some idiot might do after seeing the movie, you'd never do anything. He also had this to say about ending a film, as he felt that 
so many of so many films did not end well and he really uh i think and i agree with him he does have a knack for fucking get giving it to you i guess you could say in terms of big endings and uh finales to his movies he said and every single one of my stories is different one of the things i kind of like is my stuff leads to a volatile conclusion Everything's been building and building and building, and then it's like, how can I stretch this out the most? I want to send you out the door like you've seen a movie. So often these days, movies have bad endings. I almost don't expect a movie to have a good ending anymore. And I Jackie ha- Brown is a like has a real like oh, scene that's about that weird moment when yeah. you walk out of a movie. Yeah, yeah, it does. It also, uh, I I want to say I don't think I've seen besides maybe the Star Wars franchise more people like more uh, consistently applause in the theater at the mm. end of a film. I mean, it is so, even Once Upon a Time in Hollywood there were people clapping at the end of that movie, and it really and, and it, that movie does have a bit a bit long build up and then boom, just this wild action scene you know not to spoil anything hateful eight isn't i don't think is anyone's like true favorite tarantino mm-hmm. film but god that ending is insane and by the way i say like oh hateful eight maybe not quite be on the level of the other movies and that movie if if a director that was their only fucking movie <laughs> they directed or, or that would be the best movie they ever directed like yeah. like we're talking about i mean this shit is on a different level also and i love this quote uh from quentin tarantino about making movies that you care about My integrity will always be the same. I mean, I might fail, but I find it almost impossible to believe that I'll ever do a movie for the wrong reasons because it's just too hard to make a movie. It takes too long. It's a year of your life, and I can't believe I'll ever do something completely for money because I'm making enough money now. Uh, I would never want my overhead to get so big that I got to do stuff I don't care about. In a way, doing a movie you didn't care about would be worse than working behind a counter. It would be death. When I was working behind the counter, I was going forward. Making a bad movie would be going backward. So let's talk now to close out part one of our episode on Tarantino. It's official. It's official. We have to at this point. There's no. We'd be here for another hour if we uh, <laughs> if we did everything. Jackie Brown. I, I titled this section Jackie Brown Black Exploitation and the N Word. Uh, Quentin Tarantino said, "I steal from every single movie ever made," and uh, he talks about this a lot. He talks about how he doesn't he's not influenced by things. He he steals things. He he steals from everything. So, Tarantino and Roger Avery get the film rights to Rum Punch by Elmore Leonard, and they end up changing the ethnicity of the main character from white to black. And his screenplay adaptation was greatly in- influenced by black exploitation films. But he has said that Jackie Brown itself is not a black exploitation film. He also revitalized Pam Greer's career, giving her the starring role. He literally had, he loves her, by the way. He's like totally had the hots for her as a kid. I mean, dear God. I just massively influenced, you know, like loved her movies. And he had, when she showed up to the audition, he had posters of, of her movies up all over his walls. She asked if he put them up to impress him. And he responded that he meant to actually take them down because he didn't want to look like he was pandering to her. Jackie Brown was an interesting okay coming hot off the heels of pulp fiction and everybody's like super excited about his next movie and he comes out with jackie brown and jackie brown though it does have these great tarantino tread trademarks he's got you know he's doing some of the same things with pulp fiction like bringing you know pam greer like he did with Tar- with a uh, uh john travolta, john travolta. 
you know, it's it's similar, but it's a quieter, it's a smaller film. Mm-hmm. It's it's a lower key film. It's not as audacious as Pulp Fiction. Like Pulp Fiction is just this. Why? I mean, everything about it. You you know, you could slice that movie at any at any moment and see something like nobody was doing <laughs> this. Whereas this was a lot more straight down the middle, a heist movie. The colors are a little more muted. Yeah, the colors more muted. The dialogues are longer. The um, it 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 just doesn't have like as many iconic moments in it per se. And the characters are like are a little more grounded Mm -hmm. than the larger than life figures that are running around in Mm -hmm. Pulp Fiction. And at first, it felt a little. I felt a little underwhelmed by it the first time I saw it. I've come to super love Jackie Brown. I think Jackie Brown's phenomenal. The whole ending sequence is incredible the the performances are, are fantastic in that movie and um but it is kind of it, it was i think surprising to a lot of audiences it was it was a great movie but it was maybe again not something like people were like i think expecting a lot more maybe they were expecting like an inglorious mm. bastards maybe yeah. or something like that and people have also called this a trilogy that this is his the third of his heist movie trilogy, uh. which he's he's kind of gone back and said, you know what? Actually, you might be right. He also, though, did get a lot of shit. This is when he first starts getting a lot of shit <laughs> about his use of the N-word, which, I mean, he himself is in Pulp Fiction saying the yeah. N-word. Uh, he gave himself that. <laughs> yeah, he gave himself that part. And uh, Spike Lee is one of the biggest ones. He's going to come up a couple more times probably in this two-parter. Spike Lee, among many others, had... Uh, spoke out about this and Tarantino's past films due to its use of the N-word, of course, like I just said. It happens 38 times in Jackie Brown. Uh, And Quentin Tarantino said in his defense, do I have the right to write characters other than me, other races, and do I have the right to know these characters? Do I have the right to have these characters talk in in the truth of who these characters are? I know who Ordell is because I wrote him. There's a form of racism, strong racism, when it comes to that question. If a black guy wrote Jackie Brown, they might ask that question, but they would ask it in a different way. I feel that's racist. I feel that as a writer, I have the right to to create my characters. I am hindered by my own talent. Oh, by the way, I'm not defending any of this. This is just me saying what he said. said in the 90s too yeah. i feel like he would he wouldn't be as mm-hmm. well we're gonna get an update when we cover Django, right yeah. uh i am hindered by only by my talent and i have a talent for writing black characters all right because they are me these characters are me and i know the <laughs> truth of me and i am writing me all right i will not lie this is the number one thing i won't do i will not tell a lie when it comes to my characters oh maybe it's okay if you use the word I'll just say the N-word eight times, but not as many times as you did. Well, I didn't realize I had an N-word allowance, and I spin it all up, all right? My characters are talking, and they ain't counting their words. They say, motherfucker, they do what they do. That's my answer to that. Oh, boy. If there's one thing modern society truly loves is when a uh, white guy, when confronted with the thing, hey, maybe cool it on the N-word, launches into, what does art mean? Uh, Yeah, I, it's, you know. If we had, again, I think we say, I say this almost every time this kind of uh, social, cultural thing comes up. Yeah. If we had the answer to these questions, we wouldn't be hosting a podcast. Yeah. We'd be the god presidents of the one world government. <laughs> Uh, it's a, it's a tricky space to navigate. How do you, I mean, it's tough. It's like these movies are brilliant, are absolutely brilliant. And yet you have these elements to them that are hard to defend or to even, you know, back in any way. I don't know. You know what I mean? But it's, it's like, 
But it is, it is tough because you're like, you know, I mean, Samuel L. Jackson definitely defended him and the whole oh, thing. Yeah, I think yeah. he, there was one sentence in that movie where Samuel Jackson says, in just a sentence, the N-word six <laughs> times, which is di- difficult, I'm going to say, to say the least, <laughs> to even accomplish that feat. It's, uh, I mean, again, I don't have the answers. You don't have the answers. It's just this weird, like, and it's this weird thing where he wouldn't get as much flack if he had just, like, you know, humbled himself in front of the grand call-out forces around us, but that wouldn't have solved the core issue. But also, does that... Uh, that does, does, yeah, but does that's that just... Does that an auteur that, make? You know what I mean? Like, if you sit there and you backpedal on the creative choices you made, it's also not really the kind of thing that a person, that type of person would ever do. You know what I mean? That's not how they got where they got, by, like... Take, by like take you know bending to people's criticism and stuff again i'm not saying that it's right but i'm also saying like that's not that person oh yeah 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 you know my waffling middle ground would just be like what makes a tarantino movie a tarantino movie isn't the number of n bombs that he drops not at all and so like uh but it's an element such as feet dude <laughs> the amount of feet in once upon a time in hollywood we will get into it we'll get into the whole feet thing that it is unbelievable i was like like lexi was like physically uncomfortable we were <laughs> we were just like we get it oh we were just screaming at one point we're just like we get it tarantino you like feet <laughs> uh no wind bombs in once upon a time in hollywood by the way that's i'm you know what now, now that we're doing a part two i'll finally get off my ass and uh, watch it watch once upon a time in hollywood i can actually spend a lot more time than i wanted to or than i was able to rather on hateful eight on some of his later films oh, we gotta talk bastards i just ran completely out of time i want to spend more time on bastards i want to spend more time we didn't even talk about like his crew i want to talk about his team the cinematographer the the we talked a little bit about the editor i want i mean his sound people i want to talk more about delve deeper into his approach to music his approach to soundtracks he's one of the best he's like right up there with like Wes Anderson and and some you know Scorsese when it comes to just like bomb fucking soundtracks perfectly integrated into his films Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by the way no no different just an amazing fucking soundtrack See, this is why we gotta we should have just done the one movie because we can't, it's, it's too much guy to contain. But people love a two-parter, and we hope you join us for part two of Quentin Tarantino. We will not stop here, we promise. Thank you so much for joining us on our part one of, of The Man. Uh, my name is Holden McNeely, and you, before you even f- look for me on Twitch, first what I need you to do is I need you to check us out on patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. If you'd like to help support us further, $5 a month gets you weekly bonus episodes. I believe I'm going to force uh, Jake to uh, rank the Tarantino movies with me on a bonus episode. Oh, that'll be great. Coming up, that'll be super fun. We'll uh, maybe do a discussion on Number One, time it's in Hollywood. Packed. <laughs> I I love that he did that. I love it. Uh, I, I can't. I, another thing we didn't get to talk about that I want to talk about was actually all the shit he produced. He producer rolled on, on so many great like um, period films and and things. So we'll talk about that. But anyways, I digress. Patreon.com forward slash Whizbrew five dollars a month bonus episode every single whoa 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 week. Uh, Holden McNeely. What do I do? I I stream on Twitch. Twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho Jake. You can follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young. And hey, if you like the show, leave a review on iTunes. It uh, helps us get visibility. 
And, uh, you know, next time you're having a conversation and someone's like, yeah, what's a good podcast? Just kind of punch him in the elbow as hard as you can and just be like, hit him in the nuts. <laughs> Wizard and the bruiser. Then knife him. Knife him till he's dead. And they're going to be like, that's a weird name. And be like, it doesn't really convey what the show is about. And then they'll be like, oh, my God, why am I bleeding from my stomach? Oh, Lord, what's happening? They uh, poisoned the coffee. Oh, I can't speak because the blood's in my throat. Well, I don't know why I came in tonight. Huh. Hookah chaka, hookah chaka. See you later, y'all. Oh, wait, before we say see you later, never always remember, or never remember, please keep br- bruising. <laughs> Don't whiz, stop. <laughs> this show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/slash activecash.